0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McLarty.
1: I would say all things being equal that we will finish Ezekiel next week. The good news is, in a couple of weeks, we'll be starting the book of Esther. And yes, I encourage you to bring your noisemakers. Do you know what that's about? In the Orthodox Jewish temples, when they read the book of Esther, every time the name Haman is mentioned... Everybody makes noises, and they mock the name publicly. So uh, I think that would be fun. So anybody who wants to bring a noisemaker, don't don't do that. Don't bring a (laughs) noisemaker. But be ready to uh, shake your fist every time you hear the word Haman. So I think between this week and next week, we can finish up Ezekiel. Now, how I wish... I could make the next two Wednesdays more exciting. But the last part that we're going to be reading of Ezekiel is just facts and figures and details and not a whole lot of theology, not a whole lot of stuff that we can glean from outside of information. Now, granted, there are a few websites that attempt to spiritualize these chapters, But I just don't think that it was Ezekiel's purpose to have these chapters spiritualized because there's just far too much mathematical precision going on. And with the amount of detail and precision that he spells out and how well that mathematical precision works out in the land space that's described, it's very clear that Ezekiel is saying these things very, very literally. So we have to read them literally and understand them literally, but in so doing, we also end up just kind of stating facts and figures. Mm. So I think visual aids are helpful. So Tom, if you would, hand these out. This visual aid is a Drawing a rendering of what the land of Palestine and Israel will look like according to the divisions that we're about to read. God is very, very specific about the land not only being His land. But that it is then divided up among the 12 tribes, because remember, all 12 tribes are going to be represented and reunited in Israel, they're going to have one common king. And so God spells out exactly where everybody's going to be, where every tribe is going to be, what the layout is going to be, not only of Israel, but remember that the land that we know is Palestine has all been promised to Abraham. And in fact, the land promise given to Abraham back in Genesis takes the future of Israel all the way out into Iraq, out to the Euphrates River and down into Egypt. And so so the land divisions include a division of land that God is going to say belongs to him. He calls it the Lord's portion. And that portion of land is where his temple is going to be. And then on either side of the Lord's portion, there's going to be a portion given specifically to the prince. And when you take the Lord's section and then the portions to the prince, you practically get a square of land in essentially the center that encompasses Jerusalem. And that's the place that God says, that's mine. And then set up the other 12 tribes around that. Now, let me also start tonight with a mea culpa. Uh, You know that I am not interested in being right for my own sake. I'm not trying to say, Jim is always right, no matter what he says. I've told my children that's true. But outside of that, I'm more interested in the Bible being true, the Bible being accurate. And a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about the glory of God returning to the temple... We saw that the glory of God returned via the east gate. And then that east gate is closed. It's permanently closed. And I had said to you, but it is opened again for the prince. So we're going to see that hopefully tonight. And then I said in passing, that prince may be Jesus. I just said it at the end of the message. Just kind of stuck it out there. That prince that would come through the gate is Jesus because he's God. But the truth is, in Ezekiel's context, in what Ezekiel has to say, he identifies the prince. Turn to Ezekiel 37 for just a moment. And in Ezekiel 37, not only do we have the valley of dry bones and God explaining the valley of dry bones, God explains that it is the whole house of Israel, and then he's going to bring them up out of their graves. And they're gonna be his people, and he's gonna be their God, and he's gonna take them into the land of Israel. And then, starting at verse 24, he explains that they're all gonna have one king. And the language, starting at Ezekiel 37 24, says, And my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes. And observe them, and they shall live in the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. So, contextually, when you get into chapter 45 and you start reading about a land allotment for the prince, I do believe that Ezekiel is referring to David the prince. Now certainly if this is all going to occur during what we would call the millennium, during the thousand years, Christ is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. We know that that's the description. But I think Christ is ruling and reigning over the planet, over the whole world. David is going to be ruling over Israel nationally. But Jesus also told the twelve apostles that in that time, The 12 of them were going to sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So God is not going to leave anybody without appropriate judges, princes, leadership, Christ ruling over the planet, David ruling over collective Israel, and then the apostles over each individual tribe. God is laying out the government the way he wants the government to be. He is laying out a genuine theocracy which has never occurred on planet earth. It's something that God attempted when he chose Israel and gave them the law and said, this is how you'll live. They were to live by the rule of God. And that is what a theocracy means. But of course they rebelled against it. So there's never been a genuine theocratic kingdom on the planet, but that seems to be what God is describing here and what Ezekiel is describing. So, When I said that the prince was probably Jesus a couple weeks ago, I admit that I went outside of what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel is very clear to say the prince is going to be David. And that is made more obvious by the fact that Ezekiel is about to say that if the prince chooses to give any of his land inheritance to his sons as a gift, that it's a permanent gift. And if we're talking about Jesus then what sons are we talking about? Again, remembering that I'm not going to allegorize. We could allegorize it and say, well, Jesus has many sons. And so if Jesus wants to give a land allotment to his sons, and that's a permanent gift, we could allegorize, we could spiritualize. But if we take all of this at face value, then clearly David the prince could give an allotment to his future sons, and that doesn't create any conflict with our overall theology. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. I
0: thought that it was going to be a benevolent dictatorship, rudely.
1: Obviously, dictatorship has the negative connotation. So I think if I was describing the kingdom of God, I would describe it as a genuine theocracy. But I wouldn't say dictatorship because that sounds like everything people who don't like a sovereign God to begin with would be able to say, well, he's a dictator even though the Bible does refer to him a couple of times as the absolute ruler who's in control of all things and calls him a despot, despotes, But I wouldn't go so far as to say dictatorship.
0: Well, how would you say dictatorship without benevolence when it comes to Christ? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, well, benevolent dictatorship is okay with me, but then you have to explain what you mean. Yeah. So I prefer... The word theocracy because I don't have to explain that. It's just God rules, that's the end of it. Because God, who is love, who is gracious, who is kind, there's your benevolence right there. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I yeah. understand that. So let's start in chapter 45. What I've done in the past is that I've given you. Sort of overview. So let me do that once again and then we will read it so that we understand Ezekiel's language. In dividing up the land of Israel, we hear that there's going to be a sacred district that's 25,000 or 8.3 miles long and 20,000 cubits or 6.6 miles wide. And within this land area, there's going to be the temple complex, like I said, that Ezekiel had just described in chapters 40 to 43. So, this rectangle of land is going to be divided into two equal portions. Each one is about 8.3 miles long and 3.3 miles wide. And that first portion, in which there's going to be the sanctuary, that's all allotted to the priests and their houses, as well as the holy place for the sanctuary. And the second portion is going to be allotted to the Levites, who serve in the temple, And that's where they have the possession for the towns that they're going to live in. So instead of being scattered throughout Israel, which is what originally the Levites would do, you can read about that back in Joshua 21, instead of them being scattered among Israel, the priests and the Levites are going to reside in that permanent place of ministry on that allotment that God says, this is my land. Now that's new. When you look at the land allotments that happened Back when Israel first took the land of milk and honey and God spelled out the land allotments and was very clear to say that they always had to return to the original families they were assigned to, as Tom asked earlier, you don't find a piece of land that is the Lord's land. So this is something new where God has said he's going to be right there in their midst and there's an allotment that just belongs to him where his Levites, where his priests all dwell. So, then on top of that, the square of that land, 8.3 miles in all four dimensions, is going to be located at the present site where Jerusalem is right now. So, that's the place where God chose to place his name. So, of course, his land allotment is going to include Jerusalem. And there's a band of land that extends from the city to the east and to the west, and the prince. We conclude that that is David. The prince is going to have the land that's bordering each side of the area that was formed by that sacred district and the property of the city. So this strip of land is going to extend on the east to the Jordan River and on the west to the Mediterranean Sea. And then he's going to turn his attention, starting at verse 9 to the fairness that the prince is going to spell out. Because remember that after the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom, Israel, were separated from each other, that even though occasionally in the lineage of David, there was a good king for Judah, in the north, there was just a succession of bad kings, bad princes, bad rulers. And so... God is going to take the time to say that the prince is going to be absolutely fair in his dealings with Israel. So let's start reading and see how far we get. Chapter 45, verse 1, When you shall divide by lot the land for inheritance, you shall offer an allotment to the Lord, a holy portion of the land. The length shall be the length of 25,000 cubits, and the width shall be 10,000. It shall be holy within its boundaries all round about. Okay, holy, what does that mean? It will be separated. It can't be used for any common use. You can't use it for any everyday use. The same way that the furniture and the items that were inside the temple, inside the tabernacle and the holy of holies, those things were consecrated to God's use and then couldn't be used for any common purpose. And so the same way now that that furniture was considered holy, now God says that whole piece of land, including Jerusalem, and all the area where my temple is, that's all now holy land. In other words, separate that. Don't use it for any common purpose. Out of this, there shall be the holy place, a square round about it, 500 by 500 cubits, And 50 cubits for its open space round about. And from this area you shall measure a length of 25,000 cubits and a width of 10,000 cubits. And it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, who come near to minister to the Lord. And it shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary." And an area 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width shall be for the Levites, the ministers of the house, and for the possession of the cities to dwell in. And you shall give the city possession of an area 5,000 cubits wide and 25,000 cubits long aside or alongside the allotment of the holy portion, and it shall be for the whole house of Israel. And the prince, says verse 7, and the prince shall have land on either side of the holy allotment and the property of the city, adjacent to the holy allotment and the property of the city, on the west side toward the west, and on the east side toward the east, and in length comparable to one of the portions, from the west border to the east border. This shall be his land for a possession in Israel. So my princes shall no longer oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. What God is saying here is by giving him such a significant portion of land, none of the princes, none of the kings now are going to have to oppress the people, overtax the people. You may recall all the way back at Israel coming to God and saying, we want a king, We want to be like the other nations around us. We want to have a king. And so God said, all right, you can have a king, but he's going to be a ruinous king. He's going to be tall. He's going to lead you into war and battle, but he's also going to take the choicest of all the wine, and he's going to take the best of the women, and he's going to take the best of of your produce, and he's going to take the best of everything. He's going to tax you excessively. But hey, if you want a king and you're not satisfied to just be ruled by me, I'm going to give you a king. And he said up front what the kings were going to do. They were going to tax the people excessively. So God is now making sure that the prince to come never has to do that. He's going to have such a land allotment, and that land allotment is going to produce for him. And that's where he's going to have plenty of food and animals, everything else, so that he doesn't have to take from the people. Verse 8. And this shall be his land for a possession in Israel. So my princes shall no longer oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. And that's the drawing that you have. Thus says the Lord God. Enough, you princes of Israel. Put away violence and destruction and practice justice and righteousness. Stop your expropriations from my people, declares the Lord God. You shall have just balances, a just ephah, and a just bath. Does anybody know what that means? How much is a just ephah and a just bath? Ezekiel was told very specifically that there were going to be defined weights and measures. And by having divine, accurate scales and an accurate ephah, and an accurate bath, then the kings are not going to be able to cheat the people, which they used to do. They would require a certain amount, a certain weight, a certain amount of their liquid, and their oil, and their wine, and then they would set the balances on the scales in such a way that it always tipped in the king's favor. So not only were they taxing the people heavily, but they were cheating the people heavily. And so God is saying... That's coming to an end. Use accurate scales. So an efa is the measure of some dry capacity, and the bath is a measure of liquid capacity. They're equivalent to approximately five gallons. Each of these is about a tenth of a homer. We'll get into that. A homer was approximately, really, three people? You enjoyed that? Thank you. A homer is also a weight and a measure, actually. It's approximately 50 gallons or about six bushels, or roughly what you would consider a donkey load. So Ezekiel defines the measure of the weight very, very specifically. He says a shekel is to consist of 20 giras, a shekel weighed just under 11 and a half grams, or about two-fifths of an ounce, a gerah was Israel's smallest unit of weight. It took 20 gerahs to make up one shekel. Ezekiel states that 60 shekels, 20 plus 25 plus 15, equals one mina. So he's giving all the very specific, consistent weights and measures so that nobody can cheat anybody. Here's what he says. You'll have a just balance, a just ephah, in a just bath. The ephah and the bath. shall be the same quantity. So that the bath. May contain a tenth of a homer. Oh! And the ephah. A tenth of a homer. And their standards should be. According to the homer. The only reason I did the bad homer. Impression again. Was because these two liked it last time. And that's really. It's really the only reason I did it. Verse 12. And the shekel shall be twenty giras, twenty shekels, twenty-five shekels, and fifteen shekels shall be your mana. This is the offering that you shall offer: a sixth of an ephah from a homer of wheat, and a sixth of an ephah from a homer of barley, and the prescribed portion of oil, namely the bath of oil, and a tenth of a bath from each core which the 10 baths or a Homer for 10 baths are a Homer and one sheep from each flock of 200 from the watering places of Israel and for a grain offering and for a burnt offering and for a peace offering to make atonement for them declares the Lord God. Okay. So what's going on here? God not only says that the weights and the measures have to be sufficient, have to be completely just, but now God is saying, this is what sacrifices, what offerings you're going to bring to me. And then when you say, well, that's, that seems like a large portion that they have to bring all the time. In a moment, he's going to say, and the prince is going to provide those. Because the prince is the one who is going to get the gifts from the other 12 tribes. And once the gifts come, it's out of those gifts that God expects his offerings. So there's just this system of extreme fairness going on. That's what I want you to see. Even if you get lost in the details and you get lost in the numbers, just remember that what God is setting up is a completely just and fair system so that nobody gets to cheat anybody. So this is about the offering that you're going to bring. One sheep from each flock of 200 from the watering places of Israel for a grain offering, for a burnt offering, and for peace offerings to make atonement for them, declares the Lord God. And all the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince in Israel. And it shall be the prince's part to provide the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the libations at the feast. Think about that for just a moment. He's going to start explaining the feast to come. And it used to be that you had to tithe roughly 30% of your total income because a tenth went to the widows and went to the support of the Levites and you had to lay that up in grain silos but then you also had to have a tithe that you brought for the, the support, the regular support of the work of the temple. And then there was a tithe that you had to put aside of all your grains, your foods, so that you could bring that tithe to Jerusalem so that three times a year you could feast before the Lord. And so you had to separate that part from your total income or your total growth or whatever you had in animals and grain and you had to bring that to jerusalem here's a change god says now when you come for my feast the prince is going to bring in all the food and all the libations and all the sacrifices the prince is going to supply for you in other words just show up here's what he says And it shall be the prince's part to provide the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the libations at the feasts, and on the new moons, and on the Sabbaths. At all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel, he shall provide the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings to make atonement to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, in the first month, on the first day of the month, You shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary and the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doors of the house on the four corners of the ledge of the altar and on the posts of the gate of the inner court and thus you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who goes astray or is naive so that you shall make atonement for the house. In other words, First, you start by sanctifying my house once a year. On the first day of the first month, you start your year by sanctifying the temple of God. And then if in the process of doing that, someone sins inadvertently, on the seventh day, you also make a sacrifice for them as an atonement for the fact that while they were working in my house, they sinned inadvertently. They didn't mean to. Everyone who goes astray or is naive. So you shall make atonement for the house. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days, and unleavened bread shall be eaten. Look at that. The Passover, which is the first feast that God put in place for Israel back when he brought them out of Egypt, when the death angel passed over Israel and killed all the firstborn of the sons of Egypt and then God said memorialize that day every year memorialize that 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 night you came out of Egypt I delivered you out of Egypt and I did that on this day you're going to celebrate it on the first day of the month or on the first month on the 14th day of the first month that has always been the date of Passover and it hasn't changed and then jesus comes along and jesus has the passover with his disciples and says to them with great longing i have desired to eat this passover with you and he doesn't say stop keeping the passover what he says is now when you do it instead of remembering egypt and your deliverance from egypt remember me but keep doing the passover But what you remember now isn't the deliverance from Egypt, it's what I'm doing to deliver you from sin. And then all the way here in what appears to be the millennium and the regathering of the 12 tribes and the keeping once again of the feast days, God specifically says, keep the Passover, and he doesn't change the day or the time or anything. Now, there is another feast that God is going to say to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, the one in the fall, he's going to say, keep that one too, but you're also going to notice there are certain feasts that don't come up, like the Feast of Trumpets. Israel was told to keep the Feast of Trumpets, but when they're regathered in the millennial period, they're not told to do that. Why? Well, I think it's because it's satisfied in the return of Christ and the gathering of the church. So notice... The feasts that do exist here and the feasts that don't exist here because, again, God is remarkably, remarkably consistent in the things that he is saying. Keep doing this, Israel. You always should have been doing this. This is part of my commands to you that you would always stop and remember your deliverance from Egypt and how faithfully I have brought you to this land. And now that you're back in that land, keep the Passover again.
0: Would that be fulfilled then? Or is it an eternal thing?
1: As far as sacrifices? Oh, as far as sacrifices, no. I don't think there will be sacrifices in the new Jerusalem. Because I think once you get to Revelation 21, the burning up of the planet, the new heavens, the new earth, Jerusalem comes down from above, there's no mention, even though there's a temple, there's no mention of animal sacrifices. Now, I'm just saying that because the Bible doesn't mention animal sacrifices in New Jerusalem. If we get to New Jerusalem and God still requires some kind of sacrifice, that's okay with me. He's under no obligation to tell me everything. But as we read it now, no, there doesn't seem to be any animal sacrifices then. But that's that's the new age. That's the age to come. That's the age when Jesus was asked about like marriage he said in the age to come there's neither marriage nor given in marriage you know that's that's an age to come not this age and the millennium is part of this age and in this age God is still dealing with Israel and everything that he has promised through the prophets to Israel he's dealing with the church those that belong to Christ and then he's going to return his attention to Israel in order to accomplish everything he ever promised Israel. And then, having wrapped that up, finally, New Jerusalem, in which holiness dwells.
0: So we prophesy in part until we are known.
1: Yeah, we prophesy kingdom. in part. We know in part. Okay, that's yeah. Okay. So. Thank you. Yeah. No problem. Keep asking questions. That's good. Okay, so I think we are at verse 17. No, I think we're at verse 18. Let's start there. Thus says the Lord God in the first month, on the first of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. And the priests shall take some of the blood from the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the house, on the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and on the posts of the gate of the inner court. And thus you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who goes astray or is naive, so you shall make atonement for the house. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. And on that day the prince shall provide for himself and for all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. And during the seven days of the feast, he shall provide as a burnt offering to the Lord seven bulls and seven rams without blemish on every day of the seven days and a male goat daily for the sin offerings. And he shall provide as a grain offering an ephah with the bull, an ephah for the ram, and a hin of oil with the ephah. And in the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, at the feast, he shall provide like this seven days for the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the oil." Okay, so what happens in the seventh month on the 15th day? That's the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you go and read Zechariah, Zechariah's description of what's going to happen to the nations that came up against Israel when the time of tribulation finally strikes, those nations that warred against Israel have to come up to Israel every year at the Feast of Tabernacles. And if they don't, God cuts off their reign. So Jerusalem... And Israel are going to have worldwide prominence. And the nations that warred against Israel are going to have to come and do obeisance in Jerusalem on the Feast of Tabernacles every year, year in, year out. God's very, very fair. All right. So that takes us to chapter 46, which I'm going to at least plow partway through. I think we'll get most of it done tonight because I'm determined to get done next week because you're all looking forward to Esther. Okay, bring your horns and noisemakers. Okay, let's do that. Bring, bring percussion instruments, bring noisemakers. and, and okay. Oh, you dare us. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm daring you. That's exactly. Thus says the Lord God, the gate of the inner court facing east shall be shut during the six working days, but it shall be opened on the Sabbath day and opened on the day of the new moon. And the prince shall enter by way of the porch of the gate from the outside and stand by the post of the gate. Then the priest shall provide his burnt offering and his peace offering, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate and then go out." but the gate shall not be shut until evening. The people of the land will also worship at the doorway of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons. And the burnt offering which the prince shall offer to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish, and a grain offering shall be an ephah with the ram, and the grain offering with the lambs, as much as he is able to give, and a hin of oil with an ephah. And on the day of the new moon, he shall offer a young bull without blemish, also six lambs and a ram, which shall be without blemish, and he shall provide a grain offering, and an ephah with the bull, and an ephah with the ram, and with the lambs as much as he is able, and a hin of oil with the ephah. And when the prince enters, he shall go in by the way of the porch of the gate and go out by the same way. But when the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feast, he who enters by the way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. And he who enters by the way of the south gate shall go out by way of the north gate. No one shall return by the way of the gate by which he entered, but he shall go straight out. So the prince gets to come and go through the eastern gate. All the other folks have to come in through one or the other north or south gate and keep going in a straight line out the other gate. So if you enter by the north gate, bring your gifts, bring your worship to God, and then enter by the south all this is, and I think this is divinely clever of God, all this is is making sure that everybody gets a chance to go through the temple and keeps it in an orderly fashion. If you come in from the north, you exit through the south. If you come in through the south, you exit through the north so that there's not confusion in the middle of his temple.
0: You don't have to
1: turn around and go back. You don't, you don't turn around and go back. You go straight forward in the worship of God, which, by the way, I'm not going to allegorize this, but... The angels that Ezekiel has seen a couple of times, the cherubim that carry the throne of God, one of the things he keeps pointing out about them is that they always move straight. And so God is very into that sort of straight movement in his worship. Verse 10, and when they go in, the prince shall go in among them. And when they go out, he shall go out. And at the festivals and the appointed feasts, the grain offering shall be an ephah with a bull and an ephah with a ram and with the lambs as much as one is able to give and a hint of oil with an ephah. And when the prince provides a free will offering, okay, so it's not enough that he had to do all those required offerings. He can also do a votive offering. He just wants to give more to God. May I also say, since I just came across that word. I have argued with folks for many years now about the word free will, about the concept of free will, and they will argue with me, uh, the word free will is in the Bible, at least some translations. Some will say votive, but they'll point out that the NASB does say free will, and so they jump all over that and say, see, the Bible does say free will. First off, uh, in the New Testament, the word free will doesn't exist anywhere. It doesn't exist once. It's just not in there. Uh, Wherever the will of man is talked about throughout the New Testament and throughout the entire Old Testament, I would say, wherever the will of man naturally occurs, it's always in the negative. It's always the will of man is bound by his sin nature, and the freedom... Of free, unencumbered, libertarian free will. That freedom to choose Jesus or to choose to be good or to choose to please God doesn't exist anywhere in the Bible. Doesn't exist. The only place where you see free will is here, votive offerings. Back in the book of Leviticus, when God spells out the offerings that are required, he takes the time to say, and once you've brought everything that's required, after you've brought your tithes, after you've brought your grains, after you've brought your animals, after you've done everything that I've required from you, from your oil and your wine, after you've brought all the sacrifices, after your 30% tithes, after all your first fruits, after you've done everything I've required of you, if you want to give a little more then you can, that's the only place that free will shows up in the Bible. So don't let the fact that he said free will offering here get you thinking, "Oh, free wills in the Bible." I thought Jim said there was no such thing as free will. I still say that. There's no such thing as an absolutely free unencumbered will. All philosophy says that. All science says that. Because your will is dictated by who you are, and where you grew up, and how your parents raised you, and what society you're in and what beliefs you have and what you hold on to, all of that informs the decisions that you make so that the decisions you make are not truly genuinely free. They are heavily, heavily influenced. But beyond that, if you are truly depraved, if you are naturally sinful, then your will is restricted by your nature, by your inability. Here, we'll we'll check this one. Um, April, if you would. There's a wall right here. I would like you to run through that wall if you, if you could. What do you mean, no? <laughs> Tom spun around in his seat to see that happen. No
0: time.
1: Showtime. <laughs> through the wall. Go. Yeah, you can't. What if you willed to do it? What if you really wanted to do it? What if you really, really willed to do it? I'll show Jim Here he is embarrassing me in front of everybody on a Wednesday night. I'll show him I'm going through this wall. Could you do it then? No. Why? Because your will is restricted by your nature, and your nature is such that you can't go through that wall. Okay, then you don't have a free will. If I had an absolutely unencumbered free will to do whatever I wanted to do, I'd never be sick. (laughs) I would will not to be sick. I would also will to make myself king of England. Why England? I don't know. Maybe king of Norway. Too cold. King of England. That's where I'm going. But I can't do that. Why? Because my will is restricted by my nature. Okay, that's the end of the free will talk. But don't get too excited about the free will offering here because it's the only place in the Bible that you see any reference to free will. When the prince provides a free will offering a burnt offering or a peace offering as a free will offering to the Lord, the gate facing the east shall be opened for him. And he shall provide his burnt offering and his peace offerings as he does on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out and the gate shall be shut after he goes out. So any time that the prince approaches God to worship God, to bring an offering to God, he can come through the East Gate. Nobody else can go through the East Gate. Everybody else has to go through the North and the South Gate because the East Gate is holy because God passed through it. Verse 13, and you shall provide a lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering to the Lord daily, morning by morning you shall provide it. Also you shall provide a grain offering with it, morning by morning a sixth of an ephah and a third of a hin of oil to moisten the fine flour and grain offering to the Lord continually by a perpetual ordinance do you notice what's missing there what's missing God used to also require an evening offering here he says morning by morning bring me my offerings there's no mention of an evening offering So, God is making some changes to the new way of the economy that he's setting up among Israel here. Thus, they shall provide the lamb, the grain offering, and the oil morning by morning for a continual burnt offering. So, thus says the Lord God, verse 16, If the prince gives a gift out of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. But... If he gives a gift from his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be until the year of liberty. Then it shall return to the prince. His inheritance shall only be to his sons, and it shall belong to them. And the prince shall not take from the people's inheritance, thrusting them out of their possession. He shall give his son's inheritance from his own possession. So, that my people shall not be scattered anybody from his possession. So, again, God being very, very fair is saying, once I have allotted land to each person, once I have given land to each tribe, once I have said, This is your inheritance and this is your land, it can't be given away and it can't be taken by the prince. Something that happened a lot in the Old Testament where the kings and the princes would just go take, for instance, Naboth's vineyard. So then the boiling places, we'll talk about this, they're sort of like kitchens, and then we'll start in verse 47 next week. Then he brought me through the entrance, says verse 19, which was at the side of the gate. He took me into the holy chambers for the priests, which faced north, and behold, there was a place at the extreme rear toward the west. And he said to me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering and where they shall bake grain offerings in order that they may not bring them out into the outer court to transmit holiness to the people. So all these offerings we've been talking about, all these animals, all these grain offerings, all these oil offerings, then are used to cook the meals that feed the priests and the Levites. Because there's an entire tribe that's there serving God. How does God take care of them? How does he feed them? By the sacrifices that the people bring in the worship of God, God then allows the ministers that minister in the temple to eat those things. And so there's like a kitchen behind the temple where they're going to bake and boil their food and bread. Then he took me out, says verse 21. Then he brought me out into the outer court and led me across the four corners of the court And behold, in every corner of the court, there was a small court. In the four corners of the court, there were enclosed courts, 40 cubits long and 30 wide. These four in the corners are the same size. And there was a row of masonry about them and around the four of them. And boiling places were made under the rows round about. And then he said to me, these are the boiling places where the ministers of the house shall boil the sacrifices of the people. Next week, we'll start looking at the water that flows from the temple. Really fascinating information. Hopefully, we can get through verse 47 and 48 next week, and that will finally wrap up the book of Ezekiel. Any questions from what you've heard this evening? Even if you don't get all the facts, figures, details, all the numbers, all the math, just know that God has designed everything very, very specifically because this time Israel is going to genuinely worship God the way he required them to worship him in the first place and they are actually going to be a theocracy. You got that? Okay. Next week, water from the temple and then we're done. And then the week after, the book of Esther. Anything else? Yes, sir.
0: When well, we looked at uh, chapter 37 and David as the prince, it says, uh, my servant David shall be their prince forever. How could forever be a thousand years?
1: Good question. I expect that if God says he's going to be their prince forever, then that means he's going to be their prince forever. And so perhaps he's still going to be the prince over Israel in the New Jerusalem. It is called Jerusalem after all. And don't forget that the gates of the New Jerusalem, three on each side, are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. So perhaps those are the ways of coming and going for each of those individual tribes. The 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem are built on the names of the apostles. So there's your church relationship. And so the New Jerusalem is the combination of Israel and the church, finally and forever united, but perhaps they're going to still have a, a direct prince over them for organization. I don't know. God hasn't told us. But I do believe that when God says forever, he means forever.
0: That, that prince that we are talking about, over all my years I've been taught and believed that that prince was Christ. What I've learned tonight is King David. So now, I'm wondering, where is Christ at this time? I'm, I'm sure he's on earth, right?
1: Right. Ruling and reigning, apparently, from Jerusalem. But he's ruling and reigning not only over Israel, but over the world, over the planet, which is why he will be causing things like the, the Gentile nations that warred against Israel to come up for the Feast of Tabernacles. And so it says that he's going to rule with a rod of iron. Okay, well, he doesn't need that rod of iron for Israel's sake, but he's going to need that rod of iron for the Gentile nations. So, and don't forget, too, that at the end of the millennium, at the end of the thousand years, according to Revelation 20, Satan is released for a short season. He goes out into Gog and Magog. He uh, collects an army and tries to attack the walled cities of Jerusalem again, or the unwalled cities of Jerusalem again, and... uh, That's the point at which God finally wipes them out completely. And then new heavens, new earth, all of that stuff in Revelation 21. So that means that there still are Gentile nations that exist during the thousand years that aren't the church, because they didn't go with the church. And they're not Israel. They're just Gentile nations. But Satan is bound during those thousand years so that he can't go deceive the nations and cause the nations to come up against God's people anymore. But they still exist. They're still out there. Somebody needs to be ruling over them as well. And so I expect that that's Jesus' complete dominion, and then under him, David as prince over Israel, and then under him, the apostles judging the 12 tribes each individually. So God has a a consistent level of rulership. But
0: this is not the time where there's no... Night anymore. is it that's that's in that's
1: in, I, I that's in New Jerusalem, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, because the Lord's light is going to light the city, okay. and we're not going to need to sleep anymore, so there's going to be constant light. And I'm the kind of guy that needs a nap once in a while, <laughs> so I'm not sure I'm going to like that. And the close lives. <laughs> <laughs> Did I see a hand over here? Yeah, yeah.
0: is there an expectation of
1: Another temple or two more temples? Two. There's the one that right now in Israel, they have a temple in prefab state. They've got all the furniture for the Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. They're, They're waiting on their final red heifer. And they're waiting for their opportunity to start sacrificing in the new Holy of Holies. That's the one... That Paul says, and Jesus says, Antichrist is going to stand in showing himself that he is God.
0: But that one won't last over into the millennium. No,
1: that's going to be destroyed in the course of all that. That's what I thought. And then there will be Ezekiel's temple.
0: Are they using Ezekiel's blueprint at all? For
1: no, Ezekiel's blueprint is much, much larger. than they're using more of the Solomon temple. And... Uh, Solomon Temple, Herod's Temple they're even trying to build it on the Temple Mount
0: but wouldn't the Jews have some expectation that they are the ones that need to build this or? Say that again would they not have an expectation that they are the ones that should build this or not?
1: I would think so but I also don't forget that the book of Thessalonians says that God is going to be so in control of that time of trouble the time that Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble that he says God is blinding the eyes, that's Romans, God is blinding the eyes of Israel so that they would stay in this state of unbelief. And then in talking about those that follow the Antichrist, Jew and Gentile, he says God will turn them over to a strong delusion so that they'll believe the lie and be condemned. So yes, it seems rational and logical that they would follow the Ezekiel model and say this is what we have to build. But God is going to make sure that what they do is in keeping with his divine plan in the way that he is blinding them and strong deluding them in order that the Antichrist can come on the planet. With everything that we know about the Antichrist, everything we read about in the Bible, about this uh, final world ruler and his false prophet and the idol that speaks and all of that kind of stuff, you would think that any rational person would see it and go, oh, there it is. They're there, just like the Bible said. It's here. Well, why are they going to end up worshiping him? Why are they going to take his mark? Why are they going to be part of the Antichrist system? Well, because God has already said he's going to give them a strong delusion so that they believe the lie so that they'll be condemned. It's a really, really sovereign God, but it also shows a God who's in complete control of what's coming. So when you ask questions like, well, wouldn't logically they follow this? Yeah, logically they would. Logically, they would also not follow the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. But they will. Make sense? Yes, sir. Anything else? Now, I look, I've never been able to figure out if, it, if Christ will have a throne on earth. I wish I knew. Was, well, but anyhow, I'm looking, <laughs> trying to find out if there's any description yeah. in there of it, yeah. where it'll be. Uh, I would suspect that since God presents himself... A couple of times in the book of Ezekiel, riding on that chariot-type throne with the emerald rainbow behind him and the angels around him and the cherubim crying out about him and stuff that Isaiah saw. Since God shows himself so frequently as sitting on a throne, uh, I don't think it's too far a stretch to say that when Christ rules on the planet, he's going to have a throne. But the Bible doesn't tell us specifically about it.
0: He's
1: got enough land to put it. <laughs> he's got enough land to put it on. Exactly.
0: But but he did say he was going to rule the earth. I don't, I don't think he was talking about. I know he's I know he's going to rule eternity. But he did say he was going to rule. So I'm assuming he's talking about the thousand year reign. Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Uh, his feet, according to Zechariah, when he comes out of heaven, his feet touch the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives splits in half mm-hmm. at the, the majesty of his return. And then it says is going to look on him whom they have pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child. So they're going to come to recognize him as the long-awaited Messiah. But before that, there's going to be a great many of them that follow the false Messiah because of their anxiousness to find that Messiah. And finally, they will recognize him when he returns. And then he's going to set up rule, and he's going to rule over not just Israel, but the world. So, so in other words, it's not over. There's a lot of stuff to do. We like to think that human history runs the span of our lifetime. If we've been on the planet for 13 years, we think, well, then history is about 13 years old. Well, I'd like to be there when he changes all the Earth. I'd like yeah, well, I expect you will be. <laughs> so. I don't know how to get the best ticket. <laughs> So there's a lot to do. There, there's a lot that God has predicted. There's a lot that the Bible says still has to happen. So, All right. Say goodnight to the Internet congregation. Good night. good night.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.